Welcome to another Financial Friday edition of the Barnhart Podcast. Today is August 4th, 2017, and this is episode 17. Today, we are not going to talk about cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin, because I think we need to lay some conceptual groundwork before having that discussion. So in this episode, we're going to go over some economic theory as a prelude to the cryptocurrency discussion. But first, we received an email or two after the last Financial Friday podcast. I think that w- that was pretty well received. People have some questions. Oh, yeah. Lots of positive feedback. You bet. Uh, oh, also some confused feedback as well. Um, mm-hmm. The one that uh, I think we agreed we wanted to discuss is a hypothetical scenario somebody sent you of a young couple trying to afford a $170,000 townhouse in, I don't know, the hypothetical city of Denver. And mm-hmm. they they pulled out some statistics from uh, from the area with from uh, was it the Census Bureau I forget where they got their statistics but they were saying for example the average income for a couple actually for a person was thirty eight thousand dollars or if you're a millennial twenty four thousand and that the average price of a townhouse was one hundred seventy thousand basically making the point that it's not affordable to buy a house in Denver as a young couple and I'm going to take a wild guess and say you've got a, an opinion or two on this. Well, of course it's not affordable. Of course, when you look at the averages, of course it doesn't work out. That That's the point of the discussion that we had about how all of this long borrowing of money, 30-year mortgages, and now up into, they're moving into 40 and 50-year mortgages now in the United States, how all of that inflates a bubble. The other thing that inflates, uh, especially real estate bubbles, is the disordered situation, in fact, that um, the, the real estate, the residential real estate market is essentially priced assuming that the woman is also working full time. When you have a disordered situation where women are working outside of the home, um, including in in the childbearing years, obviously, as we have in our in our fallen post-Christian culture, that addition of income into the average household has the effect of then getting bid into the real estate market and driving prices up even more. So. It, it, it's always shocking to me that contemporary Americans look at this situation and will come back at me and will say, well, it, it just simply isn't possible. It isn't possible for just the man working outside the home, just the man deriving an income to support a family as if this has never been possible. The reason that it's not possible quote on in quotes, it is possible. But the reason why the entire market is revolving at these price levels and revolving around the assumption of a double income is because that is what the culture has chosen to do. And so that all gets bid in. Yes, a one man with wife and multiple children, his income alone should be able to not only buy a home, but buy it on a seven-year mortgage. Um, He should be able to easily feed all of his children, clothe all of his children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The reason why the prices of things are where they are, and essentially we're living in a bubble that's just, it's so ingrained in our culture, in our society, that people don't even realize it's there. It's just everybody takes it as given that in order to buy a house, you have to have A, a 30-year mortgage, and B, you have to have both the husband and the wife working outside the home. And people, the fact that people just take this as given is, is actually part of the problem. 
And so uh, there, there's also the problem of, I, I guess you would call it avarice, the entire notion, okay, I can go through all of these examples and and show how all this works and explain how a seven-year mortgage is is so much healthier and you're going to be you're going to be out of debt you're going to be on your feet you're going to have massive equity you're going to have all kinds of power and control of your financial destiny if you do all of these things but then people come back and say well but then you you can't you can't live in a $170,000 townhome somebody sent me I, I think the example that was sent is you know the question was revolving around a newlywed couple and here's a $170,000 two bedroom uh two-bedroom townhouse. Wait a minute. Why does a newlywed couple need a two-bedroom townhouse? The entire notion of people tightening their belt, not living at the same standard of living as, you know, the Joneses next door, this is just incomprehensible to people. The fact that you would even suggest to someone that they voluntarily live at a lower standard of living than the neighbors is, is just incomprehensible to people. Well, what are, what are you talking about, Anne? What are you talking about? Heck, I mean, let's, let's get creative and let's think about some extremely cheap ways for a young couple to live. Um, trailers. You could live in a trailer. You could uh, buy a used 15-year-old RV and a husband and wife could just live in an RV for a while. Down by you, the river. We, down by the river, down by the river, baby. Um, there, there's all kinds of things that, that people could do, but no one, part of the problem in, in this decadent post-Christian American culture is, it seems to me, just no one is willing to tighten the belt on any level on any level. And so when you try to explain these things, they, they apparently they think that I'm going to explain to them how it is that you can have a seven year mortgage, pay off your house and do this and have exactly the same standard of living as your neighbors next door. Well, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you, especially in the early years when you're entering into the real estate market in particular, you voluntarily going into a lower um, a lower standard of living with the intention of building equity. And then once you have that equity, okay, now things start happening. And by the time, if you're, if you're willing to be patient with this and you're willing to play long ball, by the time you're 40, your standard of living will be, will be so much better than the people around you who are leveraged to the gills, et cetera, et cetera. Here you are and you've got all this financial power and presumably, you know, if you're an intelligent person, it'll probably end up that you'll be the one who's signing the neighbor's paychecks and things like that, you know. People are not willing to think long ball. They're not willing to take on, um, to intentionally take on a reduced standard of living now in order to plan for the future. Um, it's, it's, there's no such thing as delayed gratification. Everything is about instant gratification in this fallen post-Christian culture. So I just thought that that email was really interesting. It just, you know, almost in, in, a, in a sense of the, the emailer thought that they were saying, hey, gotcha, gotcha. What you're saying doesn't work because you're, you won't have the same standard of living. Of course you won't have the same standard of living. You're going to have a lower standard of living at the beginning in that first seven-year cycle or iteration. But then 
it, it will pay off in the long run. And it's such, it's, it really is shocking when you realize that adult, adult people in North America just really no longer have the capacity to think in, in those sorts of terms anymore. Well, I think also there there might have been, and I'm reading between the lines of, of what the emailer didn't write and just uh, making an assumption, that um, saying that you need to tighten your belt and, and pulling up an example that probably worked in the 1940s and, and possibly in the 1950s is, is unrealistic in the sense that what, what a dollar will buy now doesn't isn't the same as what a dollar bought then, which, by the way, the, the title of that last episode was Interest Rate Manipulation, Stealth Weapon of Mass Destruction. Yes, there is a, there is a definite impact of you know the, the the bubble in the economy as a whole from interest rates and real estate is a bubble within a bubble sure yes. somebody a couple starting out in the 1940s 1950s on one income could easily afford uh, a house that provided a very comfortable standard of living is that possible to do now probably not probably not unless you're in in, in your example and by the way uh, not to poke a ton of holes through it, but you know, buying a trailer or something like that, not a lot of equity. So when you go to, to sell that to move into a, a sure. starter home, uh, you're starting from zero at that point. So uh, it, in, in a sense, um, you know, the, the flaw with the way you were saying there is, is that there, you have no equity to trade up to the second one. Yeah, you wouldn't have equity in the real estate itself, in the trailer itself. But presumably what that would allow you to do is save cash every month too, which would just be going towards the seed equity in in your next property. But good point, good point. In which case if you if the goal is to save cash uh, month to month, then don't go eating out just because you can because you've got the the disposable money. You are literally eating your your next house at that point. So, um, mm-hmm. develop uh, inexpensive tastes and and, uh, and 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 enjoy the things that are that are simple and inexpensive in life. Um, that that I think that really was was one of the things you were getting at is that don't don't go swinging for the fences and, and going for the you know the the McMansion right off the bat because there's no way to afford that without getting into crippling loans that literally will have you enslaved for your entire life. Yeah, and ex- the the very fact that the entire system is doing everything it can to try to push you into getting into the McMansion. Um, that they're they're putting together all of these these loan products that are designed that are let let's not talk about you know interest and equity building or any of that. All we're going to do is we're just going to put a monthly payment in front of you. We're going to sell this to you based on the monthly payment. It's exactly the same way they're selling cars now. It's if there if these people and we know this is a nefarious system and we know it is an it is an anti-human system. It's an anti-family system, et cetera, et cetera. If that if that is what those people are desperately trying to convince you to do, then shouldn't that be the signal to you that you should do the opposite of that, that you should you should want nothing to do with that. So, you know, take a hint, be wise as serpents. And when when bad people are trying to convince you to do a certain course of action in a certain way, just by virtue of the fact that you know that these people are bad and this culture is bad, that right there should tell you, okay, I'm I'm totally not going to do that. I'm In fact, I'm going to figure out what the opposite of what they're trying to get me to do is. If they say borrow long, I'm going to, I'm going to borrow short. Um, if they, if they say, um, spend as spend as much as you can just basically essentially renting a house um, and max out your your monthly budget for this just making an interest covering payment 
on a 30, 40 or 50 year mortgage, you should you should say, okay, I need to be doing exactly the opposite of that. I need to be just aggressively, aggressively um, uh, looking to build equity as fast as I can. Okay, so it is a combination of practicality as well as as theory there that, uh, yes, there there are bubbles that we're dealing with that didn't exist 60, 70 years ago, and, but there are practical ways of getting around it and, and still living within your means and building up equity at the same time. Right. I mentioned at the top of the podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, cryptocurrencies next week. And before we get to that, we really need to cover some ground and, and clarify some concepts first. But specifically, I want to talk about uh, the definition of some terms such as money and currency. Are these the same thing? Um, no. Money is, is the foundational concept. And currency is, you know, the, the Federal Reserve notes that are actually in your wallet. Um, so... It, it, it kind of we we use the terms we drift back and forth, but we really should be more precise. When I talk about monetary theory, and I think the the foundation, as SuperNerd alluded to at the opening of the podcast, the foundation that we need to get established here, so that we can build upon it next week when we do go into this technical discussion and description of these so-called cryptocurrencies is, you know, people are trying to to have these huge conversations about money, about currency. And they really, it, it seems to me that people really don't understand what money is. Um, it seems to me that people think that money is a completely external, separate thing. And it, it has no connection to human human life at all. And this is this is where monetary theory, modern monetary monetary theory, it seems to me, just completely breaks down. And why you have idiots like anti Pope Bergoglio raging and, and ranting and raving against private property, you know, against um, against capitalism against against money in general um and or having the thought press process that well all you have to do is just make more money just make more money and then give that give all this money to poor people it's an imbecilic mindset and it, it i think what it what it betrays what it belies is that uh, people really don't understand what money is Money is a fungible proxy for basically human life, the human capacity to labor, produce, and create through time. Um, this is this is the foundational premise of my big three-hour-long economics presentation. But you know, it it never hurts to go back over these things and just kind of review and and jog the memory a bit. So. Um, human beings live, they exist, they work, they do things, they create things. And whether those things are, you know, hard commodities like livestock, grain, you know, producing food, um, services, you know, a, a plumber comes and, and and provides you with a service when you need him. Um, and then even getting into into things, we, I intentionally use the word create. So, for example, an artist, he spends his time and his his life learning how to become a, a portrait painter. And then he paints a portrait and that takes him some amount of time to actually physically paint the portrait. And there's also the time investment that he made learning how to be a portrait painter. You can get 
all the way into things like this. Super Nerd and I sitting here doing doing this podcast in a certain sense. Um, we are labor laboring, producing, and creating a commodity such as it is that people do want to consume. People are interested in listening to this. And some people determine that they want to, you know, give five bucks in order to offset super nerd and myself are our time and our labor to do this. And to some extent also uh, super nerd has spent the, the last I don't know how long super nerd couple decades of your life or more learning the skill set that you have and becoming a super nerd. And I've spent the last 20, 25 years of my life acquiring and learning about the skill set that I have, which is, which is more of a, um, uh, a theoretical, you know, it, we're talking about economics and so forth. Um, and so these are more ideas, but it's still, you have to take time to develop these things, to learn these things, to, uh, so on and so forth. So that, that is what money is. It's a proxy for human life. And so I wrote a, a, a piece several years ago now that was very, very popular and, and spread all over the internet. And it's called, we are the gold. You know, you see people all the time online, um, especially proponents of the new cryptocurrencies, so on and so forth. And they're they're talking about, you know, fiat currency, debt, debt back currency, debt based currency, et cetera, et cetera. And there it seemed to me that they were always just barely kind of missing the point. If you if you view money as being this thing that's completely external to human life, it's just, you know, money is sitting in piles or sitting on computer servers somewhere and it has nothing to do with people. Um, then you're, you're always going to be missing it. And the thing that the, the point of the we are the gold piece, the big point that I think struck struck a chord with a lot of people and made a lot of people realize what a what a profoundly dire situation we are in in terms of a, you know economics finance and so forth is that the the soundness of any money is a pure function of the integrity of the people who are backing the, the money or the currency. So you can try all you want to create crypto cryptocurrency paradigms and, and try to get around and, and detach for, and make some sort of a new money paradigm. But if whatever and whoever is, is backing the new paradigm, the new money, new money paradigm, if those people do not have a moral foundation that is very, very, very strong, then that currency, no matter what you do, it will eventually fail. Money is a, a, a reflection and the soundness of money is a reflection of the moral fortitude of the people, the human beings that are behind it, because remember, the money is a proxy for the people. It is a, a proxy for the human life that is behind it. And so you constantly, and uh, so many people, you know, they're atheists or they're agnostic or they're just, 
non-practicing, fallen away. They want to keep all of these questions completely separated and divorced from, obviously, religion, any questions of morality. They desperately want money to be a freestanding, solitary paradigm off by itself that has nothing to do with any of these questions of morality. Well, and, and for, the, for the atheists, if you want to, if, if if that's your, if you want to keep God out of it, so to speak, take a look at the writings of Anne Rand, specifically Francisco Danconia's "What Is Money" speech, and that mirrors very closely with what Anne is saying right now. The idea that money is a proxy for man's intellectual capacity and physical capacity to perform goods and services. That exactly. th- that the notes you have in your wallet is is a sign of hope that somebody will exchange their productive capacity for something you need in the future. I'm glad I'm glad you brought up Rand because um she was she was a crazy a deeply immoral woman especially with regards to the 6th commandment. However, you, but you, and you'll hear a lot of, especially trad Catholics saying, oh my gosh, that's just, Rand was just so completely evil. You should, you should not read any of it. And I disagree. I think it is very valuable to read Rand. And that there's two reasons why. The first super nerd just touched on is that even though she's this atheist who's, you know, sleeping with other women's husbands and just being a skanky, creepy old woman, she did, she was correct in certain insights, particularly about um, the nature of money, like, like uh, Super Nerd just alluded to. The other thing is that she was an eyewitness to the Bolshevik revolution. She saw that whole thing unfold right in front of her. And what what she was doing is she was laying out a case and saying, look, if this were to happen in the United States, this is how it would probably unfold. This is what it would look like if the United States were to fall into um, communism, Marxism, collectivism, whatever you want to call it. And she she was extremely prescient. You read, I mean, when when I was reading Atlas Shrugged, and she actually has a character in Atlas Shrugged that is an almost exact parallel analog to Oprah Winfrey, a, a media personality woman who is who is just intellectually vapid, but who appeals and who gins up tremendous popularity amongst the 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 kind of middle class and upper middle class female population. And I, I'm sitting here reading this, and I say, "Good grief! This woman even foresaw the ascendancy of something like Oprah." And we and we now know, in retrospect, that Oprah was extremely influential in executing the Obama usurpation. She basically got the Obamas going. She, I don't want to say she handed the, she handed the election to them, but I think that without Oprah Winfrey shilling for Obama the way that she did in, in the 2007 and 2008 run up to all that mess, that Obama probably wouldn't have made it. And we would have had, uh, we would have had Hillary Clinton, you know? So, um, 
just very interesting. Yes, you should read Rand, but you have to be intelligent enough to be able to parse these things and to be able to weed out the the crazy pants stuff, the, the clearly immoral stuff, and be able to then look and say, okay, this is an interesting and very useful piece of information here. This this concept of money right here, we, we can take this and we can work with this. Um, you know her her notion of what what is her theory called um rational self rational self every, interest rational self interest that everything you do has to be completely motivated by your own by your own self service and that the the entire notion of altruism is is uh completely out the window with her well you know if if you if you're a if you're a moral human being, I'm sorry, but it should be pretty easy for you to, to identify that error, dissect that out, and then go through and look for the other things. And especially um, the, it, it's really interesting to read her commentary on how governments and businesses devolve as, um, as they descend into Marxism and into communism. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that Even up. Even one of her trademark phrases, uh, value for value, in other words, how, how, you, how, how you justify paying for something or, you know, for the people who make donations to either, either you or me uh, based on doing this podcast, the whole point is, is this a value, then share a value. That stands in stark opposition to the, 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 one of the mottos of the Bolshevik Revolution and, and uh, Marxism that you give to somebody based on their need. Um, no, it, it should be based on the intelligence of what they're what they're producing. It you only you only give value that you have for something that is of value. Certainly, and so um, for example, well, now we could I could launch. This would be a wonderful launching point for a the, a discussion on cable television and things like that. But we should we should stay on track. But yes, indeed. So in 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 terms of uh, rational self interest, yeah, there's a. There's the atheist uh, angle of that where giving charity is not in your interest, so why would you do it? But you could also make the Christian angle of it that in giving charity, you are helping yourself eternally. So even in that sense, if you read it correctly or read it with a, a, a moral twist, it still makes sense. So, yes, she's not completely right. Obviously, there there's huge holes in, in her theories and, and, of course, in oh, her moral she's, life she's as well. She's far from being completely right, but but it's it's a, a worthwhile read, yeah. Right. I mean, the, the point I was getting at is that even people who are not um, morally, uh, philosophically, and religiously correct can still create works of, of intellectual value. And, and and the principles that, that she lists in, in her book, well, at least uh, Atlas, I shouldn't say all of her books, because I've, I've only read Atlas Shrugged, and, and that, that was quite a read. And that probably you, you mentioned Bolshevism and uh, Oprah Winfrey being responsible for Obama's ascendancy, at least in part. It, it, mm-hmm. it was right after Obama was elected that, that uh, I, I heard from multiple uh, conservative media sources that how the, the book Atlas Shrugged was selling out in every bookstore everywhere in the United States. And it's like, I keep hearing about this book. I should read it. And yeah, it's a 64-hour investment for an audiobook, which is really stinking long. But it's pretty interesting, too, if you can get through it. Yep, if you can get through it. <laughs> and she she is... Uh... Uh, brevity was not her strength either. Not at all. Not at all. um, When I read it, I found it useful to sit down and I had a highlighter or a pen and, you know, you can go through and you can underline key, key sentences, key passages and so forth. And then you can go back and you can take this enormous book and kind of leaf through it and you can find, you know, the really good passages and then go back and review them. Um, So 
that I would say read it with a highlighter. I think it makes it easier. But now getting back to money now. Um, so one of one of the key traits about money is that it is it's fungible or, or currency, I should say it, it's fungible. And a lot of people, they don't know what that means. They think it sounds like it has, you know, mold growing on it or something because it sounds like fungus. But no, fungibility simply means that if, you know, if I open up my wallet and super nerd opens up his wallet and we each pull out a hundred dollar bill, we can switch those hundred dollar bills with each other and we will have exactly the same thing. It, it, th that means that the, the two pieces of paper are completely, totally fungible. My $100 bill is exactly the same as Super Nerd's $100 bill. Or maybe, reason, a, maybe a slightly better example would be if you pull out 100 and I pull out 520s. That, that is fungible because they have the same uh, fundamental value, even though they're sure. different. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so why that is so important economically, I mean, it should be pretty clear and why human beings started making money um, like this almost from from the very, very, very beginning is because, OK, people are laboring, producing and creating. And, and early on in human civilization, obviously, the thing that people were doing the most was agriculture. So, you know, this guy over here has raised a bunch of a bunch of wheat and he has bushel after bushel after bushel of wheat. Well, he doesn't have he doesn't have the 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 infrastructure to process process that wheat and turn it into flour. So that's a problem. Um, what if he goes and he wants to barter and do business with somebody and all he needs is something that's worth uh, a relatively small amount how are they going to transact that? What if the person that he wants to do business with doesn't doesn't want or need? He has his own wheat. He doesn't want any more wheat from the other guy. How, how do we solve this problem? It, it becomes very obvious that what you do is then you you, in a sense, derivatize this, you know? So you say, let's create this thing, this this system, this paradigm. And we will turn every one of these assets that we have, we will translate that and quote it in terms of this centralized structure. Um, seashells, beads, rocks, whatever, whatever they came up with in the, in the very, very, very beginning of human civilization. Um, and then I, we can all do business with each other. We can get whatever we want in whatever quantity we want. And this will just make everyone's lives much, much easier. Now, this concept still very much applies to us today. And if you think about it, we've been talking about real estate. Um, you know, I've had there's a steady stream of people who are still buying my cattle marketing DVD. You know, people who are in the cattle business. Um, ammunition has always been a, a big topic of conversation in my world. Um, in fact, in the in the cattle marketing DVD in the second edition, I I added an entire module where we assumed that the um, the U.S. dollar went up in smoke. There was there was no more currency, and we needed to start being able to barter and trade cattle in terms of other physical commodities. And so we would trade cattle quoted in terms of gallons of diesel, quoted in terms of rounds of ammunition. 
and and we go through all that and how you how you calculate not only the price and value of of commodities in terms of other barter commodities but also calculate cost structures everything how much does it how many rounds of 223 does it cost me to put 1 pound of gain on on a steer and that's your cost structure, and that's what you use to evaluate the spectrum. It's it's fascinating. Monetary theory is is absolutely fascinating, and you can do all these things. But the point is, is we what we tend to do as we go through our adult lives is we we make money and then we purchase these things. We purchase real estate. We purchase cars. We per we purchase um, you know all of the furnishings inside of our house. Um, we purchase recreational things like vacations and so forth, which is essentially purchasing memories and uh, memories and experiences to a certain extent. So we're still engaging with this concept of taking money, U.S. dollars, whatever it is, Canadian dollars, and and turning them into these assets. Now, when you turn um, U.S. dollars into an asset, what you then lose is that fungibility. Um, you might be able to find somebody that would be willing to engage in some sort of a barter transaction with you for a physical commodity that you buy, but more than likely not. You're you're going to have to if you want to do if you want to do business if you want to engage in commerce in any way, at some point you're going to have to take somehow some of those assets and turn them back into the currency, back into dollars, get them back into that fungible form, so that you have the entirety of of economic production available to you, so that you may go and transact and and buy and so forth. So fungibility is still. It is very important, and we all deal with it every single day. It's just that we don't think about it. Um, but still, these assets that we buy, um, real estate, cars, so on and so forth, private property, okay? That, that's what these things are. They're private property. These are also proxies for man's capacity to labor, create, and produce through time because you had to work, you had to do something in order to generate the income and the wealth in order to then go out and purchase these assets. So this, this gets to the question of private property. Now, who is it that's constantly railing against private property? It's Marxists, it's people like Bergoglio, they're they're constantly railing against private property. And yet, if we think through what we just stated and what we just basically proved is that private property is the, the, the concept of private property itself is pointing directly to the dignity of the human person. The fact that your life has meaning and that you your activities and your your traveling through time, laboring, producing, and creating, then allows you to purchase assets and hold private property, which are basically then a storehouse of all of the time that you spent working, saving up, paying on that mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. These, these assets that you hold, and they are yours, they are a proxy for your human life and your 
movement through time and your dignity as a human being. Isn't it interesting that these atheistic paradigms, um, the paradigm of, of Bergoglio, these things are anti-human. They are anti-human and they are trying to they are trying to reduce and even eliminate the dignity of the individual human person. So people think that I'm that I am um, laying it on too thick and that I am I'm, I'm just using over the top pejoratives and adjectives when I refer to Bergoglio, for example, as satanic. I'm not at all. I'm saying this very, very, very consciously because that that is the essence of of the satanic mindset is is to despise and to attempt to, in effect, destroy the dignity of human people, of the human person ultimately by dragging them into hell for all eternity. Satan can't stand the fact that humans do have dignity and that God wants them to go to heaven and be with him in heaven forever, something that, that Lucifer freely chose to reject. See, you, keep, you just keep coming back to these things. You can't get away from it. So when, you're, when you hear people who are railing against private property, you're, you're hearing something satanic. And if you want one more proof set of this, just look at the Ten Commandments. Look at, you know, thou shalt not steal. Well, if, if private property is this, is this horrible thing, why in the world is, is God codifying in the Decalogue itself the importance of of private property and in a sense the dignity of private property it isn't the dignity of the property itself the dignity is the human being that is behind the ownership of the private property the fact that the human being worked for however long it was to acquire that that property which is his if you deny him that you deny him his dignity as as a human and at that point uh, the whole the whole thing falls down. Why did Christ incarnate? Why did Christ go to the cross? Nothing makes any sense. But of course, that is the essence of all of this. It's a it's a chaotic, nonsensical, irrational mindset. Whether you're talking about communism, whether you're talking about Freemasonry, whether you're talking about Satanism, whether you're talking about Bergolianism, it's it's all the same. It's all of the it's all of a piece. It's just you know has little different window dressing on it. To sum up and clarify, would it be accurate to say that money in concept is the fungible proxy for, let's say, the aggregation of wealth, real estate, and services, and that currency is the exchangeable units of value that can be used for performing economic transactions? Yes, absolutely. I think that is very well said. In fact, do you have that in front of you? Can you say it again? Uh, yeah, I was just typing it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, say, say that again. Say that again. But it would be fair to say that in concept... Uh, money is the fungible proxy for the aggregation of wealth, real property, and services, and that currency are the exchangeable units of value that can be used for performing economic transactions. Yes, the only thing that's missing from that is uh, is some sort of a reference back to back to human life as as the base, the absolute base that the whole thing is written on. So, you know, performance of services commodities, assets, et cetera. But what, what those were all purchased with was human life underneath it, a human being travel, traversing through time, generating 
um, some sort some sort of value through his labor production creativity. So the only thing that's missing from that is is some phrase which points back to human life as being really the true base commodity in all of it. Well, I guess if I wanted to defend my my definition here, I would say that uh, wealth had to be created by humans and that real property is only valued by humans who saw some value in it and services obviously require humans. So yeah, I will modify that and I will post this with the show notes. Very good. Excellent. Um, and I think where, where we're segueing into now is that um, I think what we need to do is start looking at this this notion of charity, and I put charity in quotation marks and scare quotes, because it's actually coerced charity um, that's being constantly pounded on us by the state and now in concert over the last 60 years since the church has been infiltrated, um, this notion of coerced charity, um, which is really no such thing, because as soon as you, as soon as you coerce somebody, love, love leaves. There's no love because love is a free choice. Love is a free choice that, that a, a being has to make. Um, if there is no freedom in that, if it's coerced, then it is by definition, not love. So the very, the very term itself, coerced charity is completely con- self-contradictory. It makes no sense. However, I, I still use the term because I think it, it, the light bulb goes off over people's heads and they, they understand what I'm talking about. They understand, um, you know, this Marxist notion of forced wealth redistribution and things like this. You know, the the rich are, are too rich. And so the, the state has to forcibly take the, the private property of the quote unquote rich and forcibly redistribute it to the quote unquote poor. Right. Because um, throughout history, the rich have never, ever given their money to help fellow mankind. I mean, we no. never had phrases like noblesse oblige or anything where people saw as their responsibility of being a noble or being uh, somebody of wealth to share and help out. And, and of course, by, by having the forced income redistribution, we, we talked about bubbles earlier in the show. If, if the government is taking you know, 60% of your money, of everybody's money, uh, except for the rich people can get around it, um, if they're taking all this money to then throw into healthcare, uh, education, all these things that normally would have been paid for out of charity or local initiatives, you're creating a bubble effect and the price of everything goes out of control. Um, I don't want to get too far off topic here, but you know, it reminds me of a conversation I had with a with a coworker once, and this is somebody who was not Catholic and may may not have even been religious at all. And I said that the I was I was making the point that if you want to solve the economy, turn the schools, healthcare, and I couldn't remember the other three things I, I mentioned over to the Catholic Church to run the way it was done in the Middle Ages. And she looked at me and was like, "What in the world are you saying?" It's like these are people who are not doing it for the money, uh, whether you believe it or not. They, they do it for so little money because they see this as their path to heaven. And because they see this as a, 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 um, a way of personal enrichment, either spiritually or just for feeling better, they're going to do a way better job than if it's education. They're going to do a better job at education than somebody who is only making $18,000 a year because it's the only job they can get with a degree in economics or, or philosophy coming out of college. So the idea, the idea of forced charity, it's got a lot of ripple effects. Uh, beyond the obvious that you were mentioning. 
Well, what a beautiful segue that is, Super Nerd. That that was absolutely fantastic because that is exactly where I want to go with this. Um, what you said is completely true up until the church was infiltrated in the 20th century. That yes, it was the church who was running hospitals. It was the church that was running insane asylums. It was the church that was running schools. Um, it was the church that was performing all of these corporal works of mercy. People gave money, people tithed voluntarily to the church. That money was then used not just to support the buildings and the liturgies, that, that was first, but then you take all of that money and you essentially burn it. You, you just spend all of it by taking care of the indigent poor, you know, the sick, um, sick, homeless, mentally ill, um, education, educating children, so on and so forth. All of these things were done out of genuine, genuine charity. Now, what we need to talk about, and I've, I've done other podcasts with other people and talked about this, but it's good. I think it'll be good to get this on the record on a Barnhart podcast. What we now need to talk about is what has happened since the church in the 20th century was infiltrated by Freemasons, communists, sodomites, et cetera, et cetera. And now here we sit and and we look at these paradigms and what has happened is that the church, the institutional church, not the, sp the spotless bride of Christ, which is a supernatural entity, visible, but, but supernatural, um, what we're talking about is the institutional church, which is, which is, everybody knows it's a, it's an absolute disaster. It is a disaster. Why has the institutional church since the infiltration been aggressively getting into bed with central governments, um, with the, with the, the left, with the political left? Why did the, uh, the, the institutional Catholic church basically just crawl into bed with the Democrats, even though it was the Democrats who were agitating for the legalized slaughter of children and things like this. How, 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 what was, what was the reasoning behind, behind churchmen getting in with these people who, who wanted this, this leftist Marxist government paradigm? Well, first of all, these people don't actually believe in the Catholic faith. So they, or as my, my, uh, my essay that is that I keep reposting and is still very, very popular. They don't actually believe any of this bullshit. Take That's, a drink. That, yep, take a drink. There's, there's how many, what is that, one or two? I think that might be two. I think we're two. at three, actually. <laughs> this, this is a reference to an email somebody sent in about the Barnhart podcast drinking game, and that was posted yesterday on, on the blog. Yes. Uh, so look that up if you, if you care to. So back to um, not believing anything. They don't, they don't actually believe in the Catholic faith. They're, they are in it as, it's basically racketeering, you know? Um, so these organizations, they are using the, the spotless bride of Christ as a, as a front, as, as a facade for racketeering. And in this case, what we're talking about is money laundering. And we're talking about money laundering on a massive, massive scale. 
So let's talk about healthcare delivery. That's the first and most obvious one. Okay, the church used to have all these hospitals, and you would go there, and it was a combination of the church just completely burning through money, taking care of the indigent poor. But then also, because it's this centralized facility, and obviously, you know, there's surgery theaters and all, all of the facilities are there people who also had the capacity to pay for healthcare would also, that's, that's where you went. You went to the hospital, you went to St. John's or St. Mary's or St. Luke's or whatever your local hospital was called. And if you could pay, you did pay. Um, and thus medical research was, was progressing within, within these hospitals and so forth. In fact, it was the Knights of Malta who were years and years, you know, centuries and centuries ago, it was the Knights of Malta through their work, providing healthcare that they are considered to be basically the fathers of modern anatomy and physiology. They are the ones who started doing really rigorous research about how exactly the human body functions, human anatomy, so on and so forth. Very, very interesting. So all of, all of this, knowledge, know-how, um, technology, if you will. It's coming out of this, this paradigm where the church is providing health care. So the communists infiltrate, what, what do they want to do? They no longer uh, also, you know, tithe revenues absolutely collapse in the middle of the 20th century because you have the failed Second Vatican Council, you have the promulgation of the Novus Ordo Mass, and Catholics just apostatize. They just leave. They're just gone. Um, so there's no there's no more tithing revenue coming in. And the communists, they they want to get on this government money laundering, great money laundering gravy train. And so what the thought process is, is we need to have the government in control of healthcare delivery. We will tolerate having insurance companies be a middleman, a bridge that gets that gets the culture from um, from private healthcare delivery to state healthcare delivery, all the insurance paradigm was, was it, in retrospect, history will make this very clear. It was a multi-decades long plan just in order to get the free economy to the state economy in terms of healthcare delivery. So, but why does the church want this so much? The, the corrupt institutional church, they, they see that the money is to be made by standing in the middle as a for-profit middleman. So you have the patient and then you have, let's call it the state or the insurance company. And now it's, it's getting ready to be the state. Um, 100%, a single payer. Put, put the, the corrupt institutional church and church hospitals in the middle of this, and what they then do is that they deliver the health care, but then they bill all of it to the state. And, you know, this is how we get this situation where these hospitals are charging, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of percent markups on pretty much everything and why the cost of everything is increasing at 9% per year. The patient basically has no engagement with, with the market, with price point levels of anything, because the patient either is on, uh, on government Medicaid or whatever you call it, or they've got health insurance. And so nobody asks what anything costs. These corruptocrats, you know, these racketeers who are using the church, the bride of Christ, as their false front facade, you know, masking their money laundering business, they're in the middle they they provide health care and then they bill the government at these massive, enormous markups. 
And the money then comes back down, donations are made, graft, et cetera, et cetera. It's just a ginormous big money laundering scheme. And they did this also because, like I said, tithe revenues fell off. And they also, within the last you know, 20, 25 years, it has become very clear to them that because there is such a massive, massive infiltration of sodomites, and sodomites are by definition child predators, every sodomite without exception is a clear and present danger to children. They are vampires, they are vampiric, and as a person, as the human mind descends into deeper and deeper sexual perversion, the, the children become a, an irresistible target, okay? So they have, they've recruited all these sodomites, they have all these sodomites. By definition, these sodomites are going to be raping children, most of them boys, obviously, and so they're going to need to have a way of paying out on all this, paying out these settlements. This has become clear to them over the last 20 years. How do you generate revenues to pay out on all of this? How do you replace the lost tithe revenue? And how do you pay out on these abuse claims? Well, you enter into this racketeering paradigm in, in direct conjunction with the government. This is why the, um, the nexus between Saul Alinsky and uh, Joseph Cardinal Bernadin, who, who basically ran, ran the institutional Catholic Church in the United States in the latter half of the 20th century, Bernadin was a Satanist. Bernadin and Saul Alinsky were thick as thieves. And in fact, guess who, guess who paid for the initial um, education of one Barack Hussein Obama into the, uh, the Alinsky paradigm? It was, in fact, Joseph Cardinal Bernadin, the Satanist who ran the church who ran the institutional church in the United States. So this whole thing has just been decades and decades and decades in the making to set up the, this enormous, enormous money laundering scheme. And that's what it is, institutional church in conjunction with a basically a Marxist leftist government, uh, totalitarian government. Um, so you have, you have the, the, in a sense the coerced charity of the broad populace. And, and, and think about this. The IRS is basically the enforcement arm now collecting this, this de facto tithe, but there it's the IRS doing it. And so it, it gets collected from everybody, not just from Catholics. It's getting collected from everybody in, in the United, in the former United States. And so, um, you can see why they did this, this gravy train, these evil men saying, OK, we're going to we're going to destroy the church from the inside out um, with with failed Vatican Council II and the Novus Ordo Mass. But it, it, we won't even worry about it. The money that we're going to be talking about here is going to go through the roof because we're basically just going to turn the IRS into our collection arm. And we will enter into this this agreement with the federal government. We'll just launder all this money back to ourselves. And then it's so incestuous because then they make donations back to politicians and da, 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 da. And you see how all this works. Now, that's just healthcare. There's actually two other paradigms right now that the institutional church is is in in the fullness of money laundering 
um, operating as a racketeering organization. So healthcare is number one. Super nerd, do you have guesses as to what the other two are? Education. Would have yes, to be one education. Of them. Education, absolutely. So you look at all of these quote unquote Catholic universities, which are now just hives of leftism, uh, sodomy, social justice warrior, all of this crap. There's there's hardly, you know, at this point, Wyoming Catholic College is one of the only truly Catholic colleges, universities anywhere in in the United States. Um, can you think of another one? Uh, uh, there's, isn't Thomas the, Aquinas out in California? Is Thomas that Aquinas College okay? is one. They actually they opened an East Coast uh, branch now as well. Uh, Christendom mm-hmm. College in Virginia. Although depending yeah, upon who you talk yeah, to, that may or may not yeah. be good enough. Yeah, they're they're very squishy and very neocony, and they have some very very questionable professional associations with with people. So uh, I, at it's this it's certainly point, a lot better than recommend. Notre Dame. Let's put it that way. Better than Notre Dame, and the the other one that comes up a lot is Steubenville, Ohio. And no, I mean if you've seen some of the videos that are coming out of Steubenville of just it's a party ridiculous at life, you know those those ridiculous life teen masses and stuff like that. It's it's awful. It's just awful. I wouldn't. There's no way, no way I would recommend Steubenville. So you know Wyoming Catholic College and Th- Thomas Aquinas College. Those, those are really the only two. But look at all of these other um, Catholic, in, in quote, in scare quote, universities. Some of them are, you know, elite, quasi-Ivy League, you know. It, and it's always really interesting as a kid growing up, you know, watching, for example, the NCAA tournament and things like that. As a little kid, I had, I had no conception that Gonzaga University was, was Catholic, not knowing who, um, St. Gonzaga was, uh, Loyola, all, all of these universities, so on and so forth down the line. There's a lot of Catholic colleges. Look what's going on now. They they do exactly the same thing. They get in bed with the government who are writing all of these student loans to these kids, right? That that in and of itself allows a bubble to form. Tuition goes up, 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 up. And nobody asks. The kids don't care because they just go get a loan from the government for all of this. This is just yet another massive money laundering scheme where the institutional church, these these Catholic universities are standing in the middle. They are not delivering education. In fact, they're delivering contra education. They are indoctrinating the kids that go into these universities into this this new world order sect uh, this Vatican Twoist, Novus Orderist. I mean, at best, a lot of these universities, you know, they're they're not even engaging on the level of the Novus Ordo. It's just completely pagan. However, they're getting all this money revenue in, and it's coming from the government in the form of these loans, and then the loans are passed to the kids. The kids are are getting horrible, useless degrees. They're in debt for the rest of their lives. And here, here these universities sit in the middle of all this. It is a straight-up money laundering racket, okay? Not just um, in debt for the rest of your lives, but a, t- a kind of debt that cannot be written off with, with a foreclosure. 
Yeah, uh, not a foreclosure, a, a bankruptcy. bankruptcy. Bankruptcy, bankruptcy, exactly. Yep, exactly. Uh, not a coincidence. Now, so that's briefly number two, education. There is a third one. There's a third very lucrative money laundering scheme that the church is, the institutional church, is right in the middle of enormous amounts of money changing hands. It's relatively recent. It's within the last decade, especially. Do you know what it is, Super Nerd? Is it green energy? Nope. Uh, okay, social services, I'm guessing. Uh, it's human trafficking. It's human trafficking. If you see the reportage about, you know, the institutional church getting money from the government to assist in the um, invasion of this of these people coming across the the Mexican border and so on and so forth. It's also, in fact, it's every bit as big, if not bigger, over in Europe, where it is, quote unquote, church organizations who are at the forefront of going and bringing and physically delivering and physically ferrying this Islamic uh, invasion force into Europe. They're paid per head. They are paid per head, and it is it is an enormous amount of money in the U.S. I mean, there was there was one example of just just one outfit, you know, that that was in under the auspices of the institutional church that had that had government payments for a relatively sh brief window of time well into the nine figures for this human trafficking. So um, this is another now enormous emergent uh, vector of money laundering that the infiltrated church is up to its eyeballs in. And so, you know, here we are with this notion of coerced charity, governments acting as the enforcement arm, and it, it, it just all feeds back in on itself. Um, you can't, if, if the people, if the people behind a, a currency, a government, an economy, whatever it is, if the people have no integrity, then nothing about that financial system is going to have any integrity. And that's what we're seeing right now. So you can, you can put the institutional church out in an effort to lend le legitimacy to all of these things. But if you if you know what's going on, you see that it's exactly the opposite. If you understand how corrupt the institutional church is and, and what the the ideologies are, that this corruption that are that is the seeds of this corruption, this Marxism and so on and so forth, this diabolical narcissism, everything about power, everything about increasing power, increasing money, uh, increasing, increasing wealth. Um, yeah, you, you realize that the, the whole thing is just hopelessly corrupt. And the only way that any of this can be genuinely, genuinely reformed is it has to go back to the people. It has to go back to the people. You have to have a moral populace. Um, look what it says on American currencies, uh, American dollars, Federal Reserve notes, backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. I mean, that that's a punchline. That is a punchline right now. Backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. Are you kidding me? 
are you kidding me? I cannot think of anything that is more despicably corrupt that I trust less. And yet we're all forced into this paradigm where we have to we have to use these Federal Reserve notes. We have to use these things. And I and, and I say have in um, it's inaccurate. I mean, we could do something about this. We could rise up, uh, but we choose not to. Um, we could demand morality from from our leaders and from our government, but we we have freely chosen not to, and so we will we will continue to um, we've sowed sowed the wind, and we will reap the whirlwind. So basically, tying everything all together, currencies reflect the integrity of the people backing them. Um, what what's terrifying is the thought that they want to go to basically a one world currency so that everyone is completely locked into just one there's no choice there's no way that you can that you can allocate pick and choose that you can look at one government versus another and say you know that government is more honest and more trustworthy i mean even beyond that it used to be that that money was not issued exclusively by governments. Banks would also issue bank notes and people people would use bank notes as currency. And what that allowed people to do is on even talking about subsidiarity that we've been talking, we've been talking about that before. Um, the more of these options you have, the more you can look, point out, identify, okay, who is the most trustworthy here? And and so there, there essentially develops a market for, for lack of a better word, goodness, for human integrity, for morality. A market develops for this and people can go and say, okay, where, where do I want to allocate my wealth? Um, my life, the fruits of my labor, me passing through time, I want to have a way of storing this. I want to have a fungible unit of trade that is my life and my labor. Who am I going to entrust this to? Is it this government? Is it this bank? Which, which group, am, what am I going to do here? As you can see, what's happening is people are trying to move further and further away from that, not giving people any sort of a means of, of judging or valuing integrity. And they're just trying to drive everything into eventually a one world currency, it seems to me. And then, you know, the, the oligarchs will have complete, they, what they will think is that they will have complete and total control of all human life at that point. And it's very difficult to argue how that wouldn't, how it wouldn't be the case in a very, in a very physical sense. If, if, there's one currency and there's nowhere to go. And if you want to eat and if you want to have energy or any of these other things, you have to use this one currency. Then the, the nefarious men who control that currency are essentially going to be able to dictate the actions of most of the people. And they can, they can for example, um, ration things they can like what we're seeing in venezuela and things like that when these when these corrupt governments come to full flower that's they start controlling human life and controlling human life and controlling human life up to the point where they start telling you you can only have electricity on this day of the week you can only buy you know four rolls of toilet paper per month you can only have one gallon of milk Per, per week, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just this diabolically narcissistic need to control other human beings. And money 
and currency and all of these things, they're all tied together. Well, in, in terms of an international currency, there already is one uh, with the World Bank called Special Drawing Rights. And there are exchange rates for different currencies around the world of, of how many dollars it would take for one SDR or vice versa. The only thing mm. not currently in, in common practice is to denominate things in contracts in terms of SDR. And if that ever, or what I should say perhaps when that happens, then the question of who determines how many of your local currency units does it take to buy one SDR that's not going to be set at the national level. So you will have a, a very centralized control of the economy globally at that point. Uh, you want to be you want to buy a loaf of bread? Let's let's get the the uh, the conversion rate between the Boulevard uh, in, in Venezuela to one SDR because mm -hmm. the bread is denominated in SDRs. And too bad that your 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 currency doesn't matter for anything right now. Yeah, exactly. So I think okay, we should probably pause it right here. And then next Friday, um, I'm really looking forward to this super nerd. Super nerd has been researching um, cryptocurrencies. And it's it, what he's going to do is he's going to give us an explanation. Because I, I have to admit, in terms of computer nerd stuff, I really don't, don't understand it. Certainly not with any any sort of a level of skill that, that a guy like Super Nerd, who's actually in that industry and has expertise in it. So we're going to all get educated and we're going to find out what exactly these cryptocurrencies are. And then we will discuss and take these things apart and see how that all relates to reconciles, does not reconcile to everything that we've just talked about today. I think it's going to be a really interesting show. I'm certainly having fun putting all the notes together for it. And um, initially, my, my thought process was, I'm going to make Anne a believer on this. And uh, I don't think I'm spoiling much to say I don't think I can do that. Um, but it, it, I, I've come across some things that are, that are both good and bad, and we'll cover that all next week. But uh, one of the things in my research and, and putting my notes together that I, I definitely uh, wanted to you know, put out there first is, is, is the, the difference between money and the difference between currency. Uh, mm -hmm. Because the, the the term cryptocurrency, there's two fundamental elements to that. One of it's currency. Uh, so it's not money. It's not wealth. Uh, if you try to treat it as such, you're going to get uh, you're going to get in trouble. Uh, somebody emailed in uh, after the last show talking about uh, the, the the wealth or the the the, the debt problem, uh, talking about um, being able to pay off their their farm. I, I want to say maybe I'm mis I'm misremembering or, or conflating two emails here, but the idea of investing in Bitcoin for a while to ride the the inflation of Bitcoin and sell it to to pay off their debt. Uh, that reminds me of a phrase I heard on some financial podcast that bears make money, bulls make money, and pigs get slaughtered. I'm sure you've heard <laughs> that one, Ann. Yes, absolutely. And I would, uh, boy, trying trying to speculate in <laughs> in what's basically a, a collapse. Um, I just really, really can't advise that. And I've been writing now for years that. If, if your objective in all of this is to actually profiteer off of it, you're going to get slaughtered. What, what a prudent person should be looking to do when they see, you know, potential economic catastrophe coming is you need to be thinking to yourself, how do I hold my wealth together as best as I can? I'm probably going to, to stand some losses, but I want to try to stand far less loss 
than everybody else will be. And so at that point, if you if one of the things that that you one of the ways that you learn to think when you learn the the true skill set of marketing is that you you stop thinking in terms so much in terms of absolute price levels of things and you start to realize that what what's truly relevant and what really matters is relative price relationships so and in another sense, you could also look at relative wealth relationships. If everybody loses some money, but the guy, the average guy on the street loses 90% of what he had, and you lose only 15% of what you had, then when you both get to the end, to the conclusion of, of the risk event or the catastrophic event, whatever it is, what you realize is, is, yeah, you have, in terms of absolute numbers, you have a lower number than what you had before, but you are now relative to everybody else. You're now way, way wealthier in terms of relative, relative levels within the population, you see. Um, and it's not, and again, the, the driver here isn't that we, we want to screw everybody else. That that's not it. It's just being a good steward. It's being a good steward of your wealth. You, you want to be able to provide for your family, so on and so forth. And you have to have a proper mindset. I'm as I come out the other side of something, Hey, I may have a lower absolute net worth or a smaller balance sheet or whatever you want to call it. Um, but if I am a good steward of my wealth, then when I come out the other side of a risk event, then relative to the other population, I will be far, far, far ahead. And I will be in a better position then to not only support my own family, but then pick up the pieces and even dare to dream, provide some sort of leadership within the community as the rebuilding process goes on. And as Super Nerd and I were also talking about, better be able to engage in true charity. If you have more of your money left together, you're a good steward of it, you're going to be able to help other people in true charity, not coerced charity, true charity. Um, so, yeah, or there ev it is. Even and in an enlightened self-interest perspective, when when there's chaos, that there is also opportunity. I believe it's the Chinese language has that, that the, the kanji character for chaos and opportunity are the same thing. So, uh, there may be bumpy roads ahead, but that's going to be an opportunity also if you don't freak out about it and bury your head in the sand. Uh, there's going to be opportunities. Absolutely. I think that's pretty much a wrap for this week. Uh, the email address, I think so too. The email address for the podcast is podcast at barnhart.biz. And any final parting words for this week? I uh, just hope everyone has a great week. Happy Feast of St. Dominic. Remember to pray the rosary. <laughs> and... Uh, have a great weekend, and we'll see you for a – we'll do a regular episode probably next Tuesday, right, Super Nerd? Uh, that's the plan currently, yes. Oh, and also, uh, don't forget, Super Nerd's website is up. It's supernerdmedia.com. Is that right? Yes, supernerdmedia.com. Uh, I have email address and other contact information, Facebook, Twitter, if you're into that. Uh, if you are uh, a fan or investor or knowledgeable in cryptocurrency, send me an email. Um, I, I'm trying to find somebody who is actively investing in this. I've gotten emails from several people who are interested in it but haven't actually bought cryptocurrency yet. And I don't want to spoil anything, but that's kind of a uh, being able to actually acquire Bitcoin at this point in time. Uh, maybe I'm just not going to the right spots on the web. I'm not a fan of the dark web. Maybe that's why I haven't found it yet. But um, it's it's proving to be a little more interesting than I thought it was going to be. So uh, and we'll talk more about that later. But uh, you can contact me over at supernerdmedia.com is my contact information. 
Very good. All right. Thanks a lot, Super Nerd, as always. Okay. Until next time, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. God bless, guys. Take care. Take care.